Well, today we're considering a passage, the one that Ryan just read, in which John encourages us to have confidence in two specific ways, confidence in terms of having eternal life and confidence in terms of our prayer life. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of a confident Christian. It may be kind of negative. You may know Christians that are so confident that come off as prideful, kind of know-it-alls, but trust me, John is not talking about any kind of prideful confidence. He's talking about a humble confidence. He's talking about a confidence in God. He's talking about confidence that is a byproduct of our faith in God. And I don't know if you've ever allowed yourself to entertain the possibility that you could be a confident believer in Jesus. Um, That may be the last thing that you're feeling right now. You may feel anything but confidence, but I hope by the end of of this passage that you're convinced that there is a, a humble confidence that God wants you to have. You'll be convinced that God doesn't want you to be hesitant and unsure when it comes to eternal life and when it comes to prayer. Uh, He wants to give you confidence. And so first we're going to talk about being confident of eternal life in 1 John 5, 13. If you went been with us through this series, this is going to sound very familiar. This is actually John's purpose statement for the whole book of 1 John. He writes this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so simply, John's purpose is that if you have eternal life, genuinely have eternal life, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. That's why he's written this book. If you have kids, you want your kids to know that they're safe, that they're wanted. You want them to know that they're secure in your family, right? You don't want them to feel like they're always on probation. Just one more mistake, and then you're out on your own, right? No, you want them to to feel secure. Well, God wants his kids to feel secure in that way as well. He wants us to know that we're safe in his family. If we're his children, he wants us to know that we have eternal life. We saw last week in verse 12 that eternal life is bound up exclusively in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so if you believe that Jesus took on flesh and blood and that he was the atoning sacrifice for your sin, then you have eternal life. And as we've seen throughout the book of 1 John, that when you believe in Jesus, when you are born from above, something so miraculous happens that your life changes in some very tangible ways. You will see evidence of that life, specifically in loving other believers. As hard as it is sometimes, and as difficult as certain relationships are, you'll have this deep abiding desire to love other believers. You know, when we started this series in, uh, I think it was in March, uh, I mentioned that there are basically four possibilities related to assurance of salvation. So first of all, you can have eternal life and you can know that you have eternal life. You can have assurance of salvation. And that's what John is going for in this letter. The second option is you, you can have eternal life, but not have assurance of your salvation. For a variety of different reasons, some people would say, and this may, this may be you, or this may have been you at the first of this series. You may say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I wholeheartedly trust in him. But I just have this, I just wonder if I really 
have eternal life, if I'm really secure in God's family. Hopefully this, this series has helped you in that regard. The third category is that you can have false assurance of salvation. And this is far and away the most dangerous condition to be in. You can actually believe that you have eternal life, but not have eternal life. Just, just thinking that something is true doesn't make it true, right? And so this is why 1 John is so valuable, because John tells us there, there are some tests of life. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you actually believe the gospel as it was taught by the apostles? And then number two, uh, do you see evidence that you've been born from above? Do you see the family resemblance, especially when it comes to loving other believers? But I say this is the, this is the, the most dangerous condition because you're self-deceived. And God has to open your eyes to that. And finally, the fourth option is that may, it may be that you don't have eternal life and you know it. You're not deceived. You're very clear. You'd say, yeah, I don't have a relationship with God. I'm not his child right now. And the good news is that it is available for you. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to work your way toward. It's, it's simply something you have to receive. You admit that you have sinned. And then you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You'd say, God, I believe that when Jesus died, he died for my sin. I believe he rose again on the third day. And God gives you eternal life. And some people have an immediate assurance of salvation. Some people would tell you that that's what happened. Others would say, no, I actually, I trusted Christ, but it was over time. I had this growing assurance that I've been born from above. And so I don't know if you have identified where you are, which of those four categories, but I would encourage you not to make this a back burner issue. Don't be passive about eternal life. Seek God. Seek to know if you have eternal life. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on, on 1 John, he said that it's not presumption to want to know that you have eternal life. It's not presumptuous because that is John's stated purpose for this letter. He says, what's presumptuous is not believing what John writes, namely that you can know that you have eternal life. And so if, if you have doubt about whether or not you have eternal life, uh, let me just suggest one simple thing. Would you talk with a trusted Christian friend about your eternal life or about your salvation? And if you don't have a, a trusted Christian friend, you know, somebody who's safe to talk to, uh, let us know here, here, just send us an email. We will find somebody safe, no pressure whatsoever. This is not the kind of thing you can kind of force somebody into. And it's something you can't muscle yourself. This is something God has to, has to do for you. But there are people we would love to, to connect you with somebody that would talk with you about these things. And so, first of all, John talks about being confident of eternal life. And then in verses 14 through 17, he talks about being confident in prayer. In the first two verses, he talks about, uh, about prayer in general. And then the last two verses, he talks about a very specific uh, issue in prayer. Verse 14, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When he talks about according to his will, when he talks about the will of God here, he's, he's talking about the revealed will of God, what, what God has revealed is true in Scripture. And so he's not talking about, 
guessing what the will of God might be in any specific situation. And if you just happen to guess correctly and you pray that, then God hears you. There's no confidence in that. There's confidence in knowing the will of God and praying according to the will of God, aligning your prayers with the will of God. And for example, let's just, let's just take an example of what, how you might do this. So let's say, for example, that someone uh, mocks you for your belief in Jesus. Maybe somebody is slandering you. They're saying things about you that are not true to other people. And so how do you pray in that situation? Do you pray that, uh, I'm going to lose some competition here. This, this is the way I was in church a long time. But um, how do you pray? Do you pray that a tree would fall in their house? That would show them, right? Or do you pray that God would give you just the perfect zinger, the perfect insult, so that the next time you talk to them, you can shut them down? Well, no, that's not it. Actually, Scripture talks quite a bit about what we're supposed to think if somebody insults us or slandered us for our, our, our walk with God. Uh, for example, uh, John 15, Jesus told his disciples, he said, don't be surprised if people treat you the way that they treat me. A slave is not greater than his master. Or in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that you are blessed when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account. He also said that if you want to be recognized as sons of your father in heaven, do this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you see, he tells us this is what God wants. This, this is the will of God. Or you go to 1 Peter 3, 9, that says, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. And so if that's the will of God, how might you pray according to the will of God? Well, you could give thanks. They did this in the book of Acts when they were persecuted. They gave thanks that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. If we're blessed, you can actually give thanks. Uh, you could pray that God would soften the hearts of those who slander you. God would open their eyes to what they're, they're doing. You could pray for opportunities to bless them in word and deed. Cry out to God. God, I pray I'd recognize this opportunity to bless those who curse me. And so you've got options here. Now I ask the question, what type of person would actually do that? You can hear that and say, right. What type of person would actually do that? The short answer would be a person of the word. A person of the word, a person whose mind, a person whose heart is so saturated with God's truth, you're so aligned with what God wants that you want the same thing, even if it's the most difficult path you could take. If you're a person of the word, you will pray that way. And this is consistent with what Jesus told his followers in John 15, 7. He said, abide in me. And my, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abiding in Christ, letting his words abide in us, it is so transformative that Jesus says, if you do that, ask away and it will be done for you. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it's, it's a counter to, it's a countercultural way of living our lives. Now, there's a caveat here. 
namely, that we don't always know the will of God exhaustively. And none of us perfectly abide in Christ and let his words abide in us in this life. And so there will be times when we think we know the will of God, we think we're praying according to the will of God, but we're actually not. Sometimes I think it's like we're like living our life, we're like looking through the cardboard roll on roll of toilet paper, what do you call that, the, the tube, and that's the way we're looking at life, and we're just looking, and we don't see all this stuff around us that's actually true in the seen realm and in the unseen realm. We just see such a small slice of the pie, but God sees it all, and so um, we have to take that into account when we think about praying according to the will of God, and so we'll talk about this more in verse 15, but let's not miss this, the staggering promise in verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God hears us. The God of the universe hears us. The God who sent his unique son to die for us. The one who who freely gave him up. The one who won't spare any good thing. He hears us. Uh, Our prayers aren't bouncing off the ceiling. God doesn't turn a deaf ear to us when we pray. And so that at the heart of it is our confidence. God hears my prayer. And you look at the next verse, and John makes clear that God hears us favorably. He says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So again, the premise here is that we are praying according to the will of God as best we know it. And, uh, of course, there's a sense in which we don't really know that whether we prayed according to the will of God until it comes to pass or not. And we have examples in Scripture of both. Uh, you got Luke 22, for example. Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, I have prayed for you. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you. Uh, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I pray for you that you might turn, and when you do, strengthen your brothers. That was obviously uh, answered. You have other examples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that the cup, this cup of, of, of uh, um, punishment might be taken away from him, meaning the crucifixion. But he added, not my will, but your will, God, be done. He wanted even more than he wanted to avoid the cross. He wanted to do the will of God. Or you've got the example of Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. That's a fascinating one, and we're going to study the last few chapters of 2 Corinthians uh, this fall. But Paul had this thorn in the flesh. We're not told what it was, but he says he prayed three times that God would remove it. Three times, not four times, not two times, three times. And then the answer came, no, Paul, and we assume he thought that was the will of God. But the answer was, no, I'm not going to remove the thorn in the flesh. I'm going to give you enough grace to uh, endure it. I want you to be humbled by this and realize that my grace is powerful in your weakness. And so we need to acknowledge that we don't and we can't know the will of God exhaustively. And so there are times when we we don't get what we've asked for, even when we're absolutely sure. We think, if I were God, I would sure give me this. But there are times when we don't. And sometimes God does give us what we ask, but it doesn't come when we want it or how we want it. And so prayer is not a matter of trying to bend God to our will and convince him to do what we want, when we want it, how we want it done. No, we pray according to the will of God and we trust him. 
And this is something, this, this may be just a painful issue for you. I've known people that have prayed for very specific things, prayed very intently, trusting God to do something very specific. And they almost made it a litmus test of whether or not God is really there, whether or not God really answers prayer, whether or not God is really for me. And when they didn't get specifically what they asked for, it was devastating for their faith. And, and that may be you right now. You may be trusting God for something very specific, and you're not seeing it. And so my, I'm not saying don't trust God for anything very specific. I'm not saying don't trust, don't pray about things that are actually verifiable. I'm not saying just pray for vague things so you'll never be disappointed. No, I'm saying don't trust in your praying. Don't trust in your, your formulation of your prayers. Trust in God himself. He's a good father. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. And so I say all that, but I also say that is not the point of this passage. John didn't, John, John didn't say qualify prayer to death so you're, you know, that you get it all right. His point here is that we can have confidence that God will give us the request that we've asked when we pray for according to his will. So this could be reason number 57, why we should let his word abide in us, why should we, we should let the word of Christ dwell richly within us, because it will give us confidence in praying. There's no other way to have a vibrant, confident prayer life unless we're people of the word, unless God's word abides in us. We come to verses 16 and 17, and John discusses praying for a very specific issue in the church. When this was read earlier, this uh, probably got your attention. This is what John writes. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, right, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he adds, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And so John envisions a scenario where you see a brother or a sister who has committed a sin not leading to death. And we'll talk about what that might mean later. But you have seen somebody commit a sin, a fellow Christian. You haven't heard about it second or third hand. You have seen it with your own eyes. You, you've experienced it. And he says... That in that scenario, uh, he should you should ask, and God will give him life. And so you see what John's doing here. He's given a specific example of how we can have confidence if we pray according to the will of God. This is a case when you see somebody committing a sin not leading to death. He also mentions that there is a sin that does lead. To, there is sin that leads to death. And he clarifies, he says, I, I do not say that one should pray for that, okay? He's not forbidding it, but he's saying, when I'm talking about praying and them receiving life, I'm not talking about that category, okay? And so he says, there, there's certain types of situation you can pray for where you don't have the confidence that I'm talking about, that I'm advocating here when I say pray according to the will of God. And so... Uh, Given that scenario, let's talk about what it might mean to, to when he talks about a sin not leading to death and a sin leading to death. As you might imagine, there's a bunch of options. People understand this in a lot of different ways. 
And uh, this is one of the most debated passages in the whole New Testament. We don't have time to go into a lot of discussion or detail. But I'll, I will give you my understanding, my best understanding of this. I readily acknowledge that my uh, position, my understanding has some tensions. It has some difficulties with it. Uh, I'm convinced it has the fewest amount of difficulties, but I hold it with humility. This is not one of those passages where you say, nailed it. You got this. Absolutely. Okay. Here's what I, I understand, my best understanding. I think the sin leading to death is basically the sin that John has been warning his readers against the entire letter of 1 John. It's, it's these, he's warning against those who were formerly part of the believing community, but now they've left and they reject the gospel. They don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh to die for sins, and they're trying to persuade genuine believers to their point of view. And so um, John called such, such persons antichrists twice in this letter. He calls them antichrists because they're anti or against Christ. And so only a hardened opponent of the gospel can commit, can commit the sin that leads to death. And I think he's talking about eternal death. He's talking about spiritual death. And he's saying, um, I'm not saying you should, should pray for that. And so he says, you don't have confidence for that, but he's not forbidding it. It doesn't mean we can't pray for people that we think have committed this sin. They're against Christ, and they're, they're aggressively against Christ. Uh, we have a, a fascinating, I mean, you read, you read the New Testament, it's just endlessly fascinating. At the end of, of Acts chapter 7, you find uh, Stephen is being stoned to death, and at that moment, he imitates Jesus, and he prays for those who persecute him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then two, two chapters later, one of the men who was there in hearty agreement, uh, Saul of Tarsus, God tracks him down, puts him in a submission hold, and he comes to faith in Christ, right? And we can't say for sure, well, that was the result of Stephen's prayer, but it's intriguing. And so we're not forbidden from praying for the most unlikely of, of enemies of Christ. So that's what I, how I understand the sin leading to death. I think a sin not leading to death is any sin that a genuine believer in Jesus commits. I think the sin not leading to death is any sin that a born from above genuine believer in Jesus Christ commits. We're told throughout 1 John that if you have the Son, by faith, if you have the Son, you have life. And so when you sin, you're not forfeiting your eternal life. It doesn't mean, okay, you sin, now you're going to experience eternal death. It says, no, you have eternal life. And so when we sin, if you're a genuine believer, the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin. And you humble yourself and you come before God and you admit it. You just confess that sin to God. And he is faithful and just to forgive us that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you get back in the light and you walk in the light. You have fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. And so because of the grace of God... If you're a genuine believer in Christ, sin, your sin, does not lead to death, eternal death. And that leads us to the point that John is making in this verse. He says, when you see fellow believers committing a sin, any sin, the first, the primary thing to do is to pray for that person. 
So the first thing to do is not to go gossip about them, tell somebody else what you've seen. Uh, The first thing to do is not to get in their face and give angry, judgmental words. Now, the first thing to do is to pray for them. Cry out to God because you love God's children. That's one of the core ways that we love one another. It's by praying for one another. Now, there may be further involvement. After you have prayed for somebody and after you have dealt with your own motives, you've dealt with your own heart, and you can, can come to the person. It's not always the case, but if, if, there's a, 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 if it's, if it's a appropriate for you to go to the person and talk to them, then you go in gentleness with a view toward restoring them. I mean, you're never trying to put somebody in their place. I mean, that's just so petty. We're, 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 we're all about bringing people back into relationship, back into fellowship with God. And so John's point is that first we should ask and God will give him life. Again, I think he's talking there about a fuller expression of eternal life that, that God wants him to experience. And so this is something we can begin practicing immediately. I mean, if you live with other Christians, I mean, in your household or in, in, in the space that you live, if you are in close community with other Christians, chances are this week you will notice their sin, Okay. And you will have an opportunity to practice this, to actually pray for them. Some of us would say we are, we are just experts at noticing other people's sin. I mean, it's like the, we can do it better than anything else. But if, if that's the case for you, you also need to be an expert in praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is just one more evidence of the interdependence in the body of Christ. God is very inefficient. Think about spiritual gifts. And so God might give you a spiritual gift for the benefit of somebody over here. Why doesn't he just give to this person over here? Well, this is the way God works. We're interdependent in the body of Christ. Your prayer may be the very thing that moves the hand of God to work in that person's life who is committing a sin. And so James said, Confess your sins to one another. Don't hide it. Just come out, confess your sins, pray for one another that you may be healed. And so we can start practicing this, continue practicing. I know a lot of you do. Continue practicing this this week. Verse 17 is one more assurance to believers that when we sin, we don't forfeit eternal life. He says, all wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. Even though our sin grieves God, if you're a believer, it doesn't lead to eternal death. Turns out God practices what he preaches. What does he preach? He preaches forgive one another. What does he practice? He forgives us in Christ Jesus. Seven times? Seventy times seven. He does. And so, God, we pray that we would experience these things in our lives, in our day. God, we pray that we would have confidence of eternal life. All who believe in you, those that don't yet believe in you, would turn to you. Faith, humility, brokenness, just believing that Jesus died for our sins. And we pray, God, that we would be people of the word and therefore people of prayer. We pray that our prayers would be heard by you, you would hear them, you would answer them in power. Give us confidence in you, not in ourselves. We pray that we would have this this humility before you in all ways 
and especially God, when we notice one another's sins. May we pour out our, our prayers to you. God, we want to be for one another, not against one another. And so do this in our, in our hearts. We pray that we would experience this and experience the freedom and the power that comes from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.